Please stand for the scripture reading. It's found in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did not... Pro did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Well, good morning once again, beloved of Christ. I'm thankful and blessed to be able to be with you all this morning here to worship King Jesus. I am regularly humbled that God would use someone as unworthy as myself to help shepherd his people. Truly, our God is gracious and merciful. May I be found faithful this day as I proclaim God's word, and may God use this message to draw his people to himself, to save those who were lost, to restore those who have stumbled and to strengthen those who are weary. Well, we are very near the end of the Sermon on the Mount that we have spent these past several months working through. Lord willing, we will finish this great Sermon of Jesus next week. It is astounding how much ground Jesus covered in these few short chapters in Matthew. How many false practices and traditions and understandings that he was able to address and challenge. If you remember from a few weeks back, we saw Jesus end the real teaching section of this sermon with a summary of the law found in what we call the golden rule. Then he shifted gears a bit at that point in what we described as a sort of closing gospel call at the end of the sermon. He had taught the people what God had required of them and then at the end, he proceeded to end his teaching by laying it all on the line and illustrating just how important it was that the people heeded his words and that they responded accordingly. Jesus began the closing section of his sermon by describing the narrow gate and the narrow path, the very narrow path that leads to life. By default, everyone who was listening to his voice was on the broad path, the easy way that led to destruction. If they did not listen to what he was saying, take it seriously and act, they would follow that path to destruction. That was their only hope of escaping the doom that was before them. Following that, Jesus addressed the hypocrites hiding among God's people. Recall that hypocrites have been a regular target of Jesus throughout the Sermon on the Mount. They are false. Their confession is false. Their teachings are false. They are pretenders. Matthew seven fifteen through 20, that Brother Clay so faithfully exposited for us last week, Jesus spoke of false teachers that would be among the disciples. That they needed to be aware, they needed to be consciously looking, observing, 
testing what they heard. Because false teachers would arise from among their midsts, or they would stand just outside their ranks. Either way, they would use sweet-sounding words, use things that people wanted to hear, or had some plausible tone to it as they tried to draw people of the people of God off of that narrow path and onto the path of destruction. Well, in our passage this morning in verses 21 through 23, Jesus spoke of false disciples, those people who made a false confession of Christ, that they would exist as well among God's people. So you had the false teachers and you would have the false disciples. What we'll see in our passage this morning is that the apparent success of a teacher or a disciple does not prove their faithfulness. It does not guarantee that they will be accepted by Christ in the day of judgment. Of course, this was true even while the apostles yet remained among God's people. Even while scripture was still being written, this was true and it remains true today. This has been true both when the church has known relative times of peace and prosperity, as well as when the church was going through the purifying forces of persecution. We can expect that this will continue to be the case, especially when there are times where it is actually to somebody's advantage to show some kind of visible spiritual achievements. Throughout history, there have been several times in different societies where it has actually benefited somebody to appear as though they were a good Christian. Times when religious position and religious authority garnered widespread admiration and respect. Even today, as we see culture becoming more and more hostile to the message of Christ, there is still a lot of money to be made fashioning oneself as a Christian leader or author or teacher, especially in the offering up of half-truths that have been manipulated into inflating the ego of the audience, into tickling the ears, or in preying on the immaturity of those weak in their faith with false promises of hope and security. See, there are a lot of ways in our cultural context that are different from that of the original audience listening to Christ as he preached this sermon, yet in many more ways, our situation is not that different. The human condition under the curse has not changed. Human nature has not changed. And the presence of wolves and false pretenders within the context of the church has not changed. Our need of the gospel of Christ has not changed. So I'd ask that you would join me in prayer before we return to our text this morning. Father, we come before you as needy people. Oh, I would love to have something 
of true worth to present to you, to offer to you in thanks. Yet all that I have to give is only what there is of Christ in me. Father, let us be satisfied knowing that you are pleased with Christ within us. We have no need for anything else. Help us to hear. Help us to be able to process hard statements in Scripture. To be able to ask some hard questions of ourselves. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would comfort those who were yours so that they would not be crushed but that he would bring conviction on any who are stumbling or who are not yet in Christ, that they might see their need, that their false hope would be shattered, that they would trust in Christ and find true peace. May all that we do, may all that I say be honoring to my King, be a soothing aroma to your nostrils. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we continue, I want to read our passage for us one more time. And I just ask that you let the weight of these words have their desired effect. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. Not everyone who declares Christ as Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. That is a very weighty statement. It is a statement that is not pleasant to make. It is something that I would not want to say were it not in the pages of Scripture before me. And keep in mind that as Jesus spoke these words, there would have been no advantage for anyone falsely claiming the name of Christ. At the church, the early church would face great persecution. They would be betrayed by family members, handed over to their deaths. So there was no political or societal advantage for people to pretend to follow Christ. They would be hated for making that claim. As I said before, there are times when it is to somebody's advantage to pretend to be a Christian. In those cases, we can understand why somebody who doesn't actually believe in Christ would act like they do, would speak like they do. 
But that wasn't the situation for these early Jewish hearers. There's no reason to think that the consequences that would fall upon true believers, the consequences that Christ promised they would face if they followed him, no reason to believe those same consequences wouldn't also fall on the pretenders who likewise claimed the name of Christ. So, unless we assume that everybody who was in this category was insane, we must assume that there was or is a category of people who actually believe, at least on some level, that Jesus is Lord, yet do not possess saving faith and are thereby not united to Christ. They do not enter the kingdom. On the surface, this is one of the most frightening passages in Scripture. There is a category of professing Christian who declares that Jesus is Lord and knows at least on some level that it is true, and yet who does not trust in Christ's redeeming work by faith and therefore does not know him as Savior and Lord. A category of people who think that they are saved and yet who will ultimately be rejected by Christ on the day of judgment. This evokes a similar emotional response as other warning passages in Scripture. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 4 through 8. Titus, Philemon, then Hebrews, just before James, chapter 6, 4 through 8. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For the land has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it was cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Well, in that passage in Hebrews, the author strongly implies that there is a category of people who have been enlightened to the truth of the gospel, who have to some degree tasted and shared in the spiritual things and in the goodness of God, and yet have fallen away. The terrible reality there is that there is nothing that can again restore them to repentance. They have already seen and experienced the wonder of the gospel among the people of God and have ultimately turned from it and rejected it. Well, to be fair, there's a lot of debate as to exactly what that passage means. But for what I have time for this morning, I will simply add that taken in the whole context of Scripture, 
This does not and cannot mean that somebody who is genuinely saved, genuinely united to Christ, held in the hand of our Savior, can be subsequently lost. It does not mean that. None for whom Christ died will be lost. Nor am I convinced, as some postulate, that this is only some sort of hypothetical, not actually possible situation. It fits in too well with other passages of Scripture to explain it away that easily. It really does seem to speak of people who have experienced something of the power of God and yet have still hardened themselves and turned away. I think it is most likely that they were in and among faithful believers. In that context, they saw proof of the power of the gospel. They experienced the reality of changed lives, of God working new things among the people. They saw and experienced enough by being among God's people to know that Jesus Christ is Lord and the gospel is powerful to save. Yet while they had experienced this power, while they had seen and tasted that it was indeed good, they remained separate. They did not trust in Christ. They were not secured in his hand. And ultimately they fell away. That isn't the only place where we see something like that. John wrote in 1 John 2, 18 and 19, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Even during the time of the apostles, there were many who had been among God's people who had experienced signs and wonders that we can only read about and yet ultimately proved to themselves be antichrists. We have no reason to believe from this passage or reading in in John's epistles that, that early on these people gave any indication or reason to doubt their profession in Christ. Them going out from the people was a surprise. It was a shock. It was a great loss to the churches that those whom they loved and they believed to be their brothers and sisters in Christ had gone away from them, had abandoned them. Our passage this morning isn't even the only place in Matthew's gospel where we find this kind of frightening reality. This category of people who are believed to be Christian by others around them and by themselves, and yet ultimately are proven to be false. So if you're still in Matthew, I'd ask you to turn forward a few chapters to Matthew 13, verses 18 through 21. Hear the parable of the sower. 
When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That is what is sown along the path. As for what is sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And then when retribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Of course, I'm sure you are all familiar with the parable of the sower. If you remember, there were four different kinds of soil into which seeds were sown. A hardened path, rocky ground, thorny soil, and then finally good prepared soil. I'm not sure what you have been taught about these different soils in the past, but the only soil that represents true conversion, the only soil that represents somebody actually becoming a Christian, being saved, is the good prepared soil where the plant grows and produces fruit. The seed that is sown on rocky ground for a time at least, appeared to have been successfully sown. In the beginning, might even appear to have been more successful, more alive, faster growing. It represents somebody who heard the gospel, who immediately received it with joy. No doubt that would be a person who would confess that Jesus is Lord, who would convince anyone talking to them that they were a Christian. They would believe themselves to be a Christian. Yet what was the result when trials come? When the profession and the belief were tested? Well, they fell away because there was excitement and joy, yes, but there was no real foundation. There was no root. They had not actually attached themselves to Christ. Later on in Matthew in chapter 24, Jesus warned that many who once confessed his name would fall away. We turn to Matthew 24, verses 9 through 13. Matthew 24, 9 through 13. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. All who profess the name of Christ can expect that they will face trials. Some will even be handed over to their deaths. Yet only those who endure until the end, meaning those that who retain their faith in Christ, no matter what trials they face, those who do not fall away, only they will be saved. Taking all of these passages together, it is clear that there is a category 
or person who by all appearances seems to be a disciple of Christ. And yet at some point they are proven to be false, pretenders, hypocrites. That revelation either comes in this life when they fall away, when they walk away from the things of God, or at the judgment day when they face the throne of the high king and are rejected. This is a warning and call to evaluate ourselves lest we find ourselves finally locked outside of the gates. This is a hard passage. Yet it is far better for us to endure a momentary lapse in our comfort if by that discomfort we be brought to repentance then for any among us to be allowed to remain ignorant in their deception and either fall away later in life or be turned away at the throne of the king. It takes more than spoken words. No matter how emphatically they may have been spoken, it takes more than words to be a disciple of Christ. Well, I'm sure we have mentioned it before, but it bears repeating. In Scripture, when you see a word repeated like we have in our text this morning, Lord, Lord, the repetition is important. It's not a stutter. It's not just for literary effect. In that cultural context, it was a primary way of indicating emphasis and intensity. It has a, a magnifying effect on the word. It's like an exponential effect on the word. As we think of those who would say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, this isn't someone who is only giving the most meager and passionless lip service to Christ. This isn't the kind of vague lip service that our politicians give when they claim to be Christians so that they can get themselves some more Christian votes. This kind of profession of Jesus' lordship would be from those who were adamant about that claim. Before we move on from this part of the verse, I want to remind us that it isn't the claim that Jesus is Lord that it is an error here. It should be obvious, but I think it's worth repeating. In this verse, it is not their calling Lord, Lord, that keeps them from entering the kingdom of heaven. In fact, everyone who enters into the kingdom of heaven does boldly proclaim that Christ is Lord. So not everyone who claims Jesus is Lord will enter the kingdom, but there will not be anyone in the kingdom who has not declared that Jesus is Lord. I hope that is clear. Christ is Lord was the first and most basic creed of the early church. 
So that is a common repetitive phrase you see in Scripture. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ is Lord. The most basic confession, the most basic creed of the Christian. That Christ is Lord. He is King of kings. He is Lord over all. He is master to the slaves that he has purchased as his own possession. His reign will never end, and his every enemy will be placed underneath his feet. Christ is Lord. Citizens of his kingdom will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And they will not, and they cannot recognize any authority that is over the authority of Christ, their King. Yet, acknowledging something to be true does not a Christian make. One day, every knee shall bow. One day, every tongue will confess that does not mean that everyone will one day be saved. It is not those who make a grand display of their godliness who are welcomed by the king on the judgment day, but it is those who have done the will of his father who is in heaven. This distinction between how a person presents themselves and the reality that lies underneath points us back to the hypocritical nature of the Pharisees. If you recall in chapter 5, Jesus pointed out the grand display that the Pharisees would put out of their religion. Then he warned that these Pharisees who did everything in such grand display to make sure as many people as possible knew what they were doing, knew of their piety, knew of their devotion to the law of God, these very same men had already received their reward in full. They had nothing left to expect that they would receive good from the Father because they did so for the reward, approval of men, not of God. Of course, we have to be careful not to always attribute the worst possible motivations to those who we know are obviously in the wrong. Even if that helps us feel better about ourselves to do so. We have no reason to think that the, that the Pharisees intended as a whole to please men rather than God. It'd make it a lot easier if, we could, if, we, if that was the case. That the Pharisees were condemned because they actively decided, I do not want to please God, I want to please men. That's not the case. We have no reason to expect that. Well, no doubt there were some who were hardened enough that they knew they could reuse their position and their authority to manipulate their countrymen. There were surely others who genuinely believed that they were doing what God wanted them to do. There were Pharisees were wrong, but they were genuine. They believed what they were doing. They believed that they were being respected by God for what they were doing. They expected to be rewarded by God for their actions. They believed what God, what the scripture said about God, yet they were still dead wrong. They were hypocrites. Yet no doubt there were many would have been genuinely surprised to hear so. 
This distinction also draws our attention back to the second commandment and to times where people attempted to worship the one true God, yet through forbidden means, through ways that he did not ask to be worshipped. Think of Moses over the course of 40 days when he was up on Mount Sinai. While he was away from the people, the nation grew restless. Their, their direct access to God through Moses, the man who had been their mediator between them and God, was gone. They didn't know if he was coming back. He had been gone a long time. They wanted a new way to interact with God. They needed something tangible and approachable now that Moses was missing. And so you know the story, Aaron fashioned for them a golden calf. And he presented it to them as the representation of the God of Abraham who had saved them out of bondage in Egypt. We have every reason to believe in that case that they meant to be truly worshiping the true God of Abraham, the true and living God. They had no intention of worshiping Egyptian gods or Canaanite gods. They wanted to worship the God of their fathers, and yet they had fallen into idolatry. A sin that would be repeated in the northern kingdom after the folly of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. A similar error was made by the sons of Aaron. They attempted to bring something new into the worship of God. They offered incense that had not been prescribed under God's law, under God's command for the proper worship in the, in the tabernacle. And as a result, God consumed them in fire. We have no reason to suspect that they intended insult against God, that they intended to commit idolatry, that they intended to go against the proper worship of the true God. Scripture is very clear that God is greatly concerned about he about how he is to be honored as God. He cares about how he is worshiped. He is jealous both that he alone should be honored as God, that he alone should receive all the praise and honor and glory that it's due him. And he cares about how he is worshipped. Jealous that it be according to his prescription. That is to say, he does not want to be worshipped in the way that men would like to worship him. He doesn't want to be worshipped and be thought of in the way that men would like him to be. That is at the heart of the second commandment. Because the way that we approach God in worship reveals a great deal about what we actually believe to be true about him. In fact, the way that we approach God in worship reveals more about what we believe to be true about him than what we say about him reveals what we believe to be true. Beloved, we don't get to decide how we get to worship God. We don't get to decide what it looks like to follow Christ. Not if we want to actually worship the true God. Not if we want to actually follow Christ as true disciples. There's too direct of a relationship between how we approach God and what we believe about God. 
An improper approach to God reveals an improper understanding of God. And it very quickly turns itself into outright idolatry. It literally is a knife's edge that one slip from the true worship of God does fall directly into idolatry. To try and make our preferred method of approaching acceptable, whether it be overtly or subvertly, to try and make God accept our preferred manner of worship is to seek an authority over God. It is to demand that he must accept what we want to offer him. Of course, that simply puts us in the place of creating a God in our own image. In the sister passage of this in Luke 6.46, Jesus asked, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? That statement is an open rebuke to anybody who would claim that Jesus is their Lord and yet do not obey him. They have no right to claim Jesus as their Lord if they do not submit themselves in obedience to him. It is completely contradictory. If Christ is your Lord, then you will obey him. Whether we recognize it or not, we always obey that which we serve. We might not always like what that reveals about our devotion, but if we look at our actions, what we actually do when it comes down to it, we can see that we have ultimately, we can see what we have ultimately set up in our lives as Lord. If Christ is our Lord, In more than just speech, we will obey him. If he is not, we will obey whatever idol we have put in his place. And this relationship is true both of our actions and of the motivations behind our actions. For the hypocrite in view in our passage today their confession of Jesus as Lord is betrayed by their motivations. And their motivations are revealed by where they have placed their confidence as they stand before the king in judgment. But we'll get to that in just a moment. Jesus said that it's not those who make bold claims of his lordship, but those who do the will of his father that will enter the kingdom of heaven. And this isn't the only time that Jesus ties obedience to the will of the Father to the actual status of a person in relationship with himself. Matthew 12, 50, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. But with the consequences being what they are, it is important that we understand what it means to do the will of the Father Don't you think? What is the will of the Father? What is God's will for your life? Well, if you ask most people that question, you will probably get the stare like a deer in a headlights. 
That question seems to be the great universal mystery in this life. Ultimately unknowable. Always just beyond reach. Well, if that is indeed the case, then we are in serious trouble. For only those who do the will of the Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. So is this really as complicated as many have have tried to lead us to believe? How about we let Scripture inform us on this matter instead of the empty philosophy of the world or the endless ramblings of the almost religious? We'll look at just a couple of verses and I think will set us on the right path in this issue. One from Christ and one from Paul. Christ said in John 6.40, For this is the will of my Father. It's a good start. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Paul said in Romans 12.2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So in the end, it really isn't that complicated or mystical. The will of God is clearly on display for us throughout the pages of Scripture. We don't need to hear a new word from God. We don't need to experience a movement, a moment of supreme enlightenment to understand what God wants from us. We don't need a guru to lead us down the right path that we can finally understand what God would have from us. He has already spoken everything that we need. He has given us in his word. Everything that we need to live lives of faithfulness and godliness. There is no well-kept secret here. God didn't hide anything from us. Beloved, only a wolf would make you think that you need their help to understand what God wants from you, that they alone are able to show you what God would have from you, as though you cannot go directly to the Father through his word. His will is that we would look on His Son and believe in Him. The will of the Father is that we should confess that Jesus is Lord and obey His commandments. That we would place our faith in Him and follow His gospel call. And Christ has told us what it means to follow Him. The Sermon on the Mount has been full of of instruction on what it means to actually follow Christ, to walk in the will of the Father. Paul pointed Christians back to God's word so that they could discern the will of God. If they look to the things of this world, if they look to the ideologies and the priorities of this world, then they would be led astray. They would be led into error. So where could our minds be renewed so that we could be transformed and be able to discern what the will of God is? Of course, in God's word. 
Does that mean that we will find in the pages of Scripture every decision that God wants us to make? Of course not. We won't find the name of the person we are supposed to marry in the pages of Scripture. There is no secret way of reading Scripture, no secret code where you can find the name of your spouse, where you can find the name of the city in which you should settle your family, or where you can find the names for your children. Then again, Scripture does inform how God would have us think about each of those issues and does guide us in how to properly make those kind of decisions. Jesus continued in verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Well, looking at the way that Jesus, the way he phrases the response of the many, we can imagine that they must have been asked a question. On what basis should God on his throne accept them into his kingdom? On what basis should they be granted access? Well, there are two things of interest to me about their response. The evidences that they give as proof of their worthiness and the fact that when they are questioned about why they should enter in, their impulse was to point to the things that they had done. Well, first, let's look at the evidence that they presented as proof of their worthiness of the kingdom. Were these idle boasts that they made? Or... Are we to believe that there are people or there were people who actually prophesied, who actually cast out demons, and who actually performed miracles who will be rejected by Christ on the day of judgments? Well, Calvin posited that there is nothing in this text that gives us any indication that the claims of these hypocrites were false. They may, in fact, have cast out demons. They may, in fact, have performed signs and wonders in Jesus' name. And many other commentators I've read, read agreed with him. One commentator mentioned that while it may be easy to make a false claim to prophecy, especially if you make that prophetic claim stretch out far enough that you don't outlive its reach, it may be easy to make a false claim of prophecy, yet exorcisms and miracles are much less easily counterfeited. Matthew himself mentioned apparently successful exorcists that were outside of the disciple group of Christ in Matthew 12, 27. And in Mark, 3, or Mark 9, 38 and 39, and Acts 19, 13 through 16, we find such exorcists use Jesus' name as a source of power. There were those who were not of the disciples of Christ who used Christ's name to perform mighty actions and they were successful in doing so. Another commentator wrote that perhaps this discussion is not so hypothetical after all. I think his first impulse was one to say it is hypothetical. But perhaps it's not. Judas almost assuredly preached 
perform miracles and cast out demons while he walked with Jesus for three years. Yet he did not know Jesus in a saving way. We have no indication until the end that Judas was false. As much as it might challenge our preconceptions, there is no reason to think that there won't be people who can truthfully claim that they have worked signs and wonders while claiming Jesus' name, and yet they remained outside of Christ and under his judgment. Just as there will no doubt be pastors who have boldly preached and even led others to Christ, that themselves did not truly believe their own message and perish in their sin. The apparent power and success of a person's religious life is not an accurate indicator of whether or not they will be accepted by Christ on the day of judgment. Well, the second thing of interest to me in verse 22 is the motivation behind these people naming their works as they consider their worthiness to enter the kingdom of heaven. True faith runs counter to the confession of these hypocrites. They may have claimed the name of Christ in life. They may even have performed mighty works in his name. And yet, in the end, their claim to the kingdom was not Christ's work, but their own. How is that any different than the self-righteousness of the Pharisees? Their claim to God's favor was based on their works, their extreme piety. The true disciple of Christ stands before the throne of God with no claim but Christ and Christ alone. That's it. They know of nothing else. They have nothing else to boast in. They have nothing else that they would dare utter before the throne of the living God that should make them worthy of his kingdom. They know that if entrance into the kingdom depended on them, depended on their faithfulness, their mighty works, their boasting, then they would have no chance. Consider the vast difference between these two responses and what it actually says of a person's understanding of the gospel. One person's claim and why they should be able to sit at the table of our Lord is that they prophesied in Jesus' name. They cast out demons in Jesus' name. They did mighty works in Jesus' name. In short, their hope, their boast is based on their good works, on their religion, on their worthiness. The other's claim is that while they are utterly unworthy, Christ's blood was shed to cover all of their sin. They openly confess that they do not deserve to enter into the joy of their king, yet they have placed their faith in Christ, in his promise that they could not be separated from him. Christ is their only claim and their only hope. And beloved, there is an infinite divide between those two responses. 
The true Christian understands that they are accepted because of what Christ has done on their behalf or they are damned. They place their faith and their destiny in his hands and they have no boast other than the gospel. So how will Jesus respond to those bold, energetic claims of of the mighty works and miracles that these hypocrites have performed in Christ's name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There could be no more terrible words for anyone to hear. The hard reality is that the hypocrites, no matter how marvelous their spiritual work resume is, are not known by Christ. They do not belong to Christ. Jesus said in John 10, 14 through 16, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus knows those who belong to him. He really and truly knows those who are his. He he calls to them and they recognize his voice. They know his words and they listen and they follow. He lays down his life for them and they rest confidently under his protective care. He is their comfort and their confidence. Him, not their success. Not the high opinion that others might have of them. Not the accolades of which they can boast. But Christ and Christ alone. Well, I've mentioned a number of times, both today and in weeks leading up to this passage, that this is one of the most frightening passages in Scripture. And I don't think it's really hard to understand why, if we understand the connotations of what's being said. There will be people who can boast of religious works far greater than mine, who can boast of devotion in this life far greater than mine, even performing miracles in the name of Christ, who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We realize that we are tempted to fear either that we cannot have any confidence or security or fear that If people like that can't get in, then what hope do I have? Well, beloved, I pray that we can set your minds at ease if in fact you do trust in Christ. 
While this passage at first glance appears frightening, I believe that there is much in this passage to give us hope and confidence in the gospel. To give us hope and confidence in our place in Christ. We don't need to live in continual fear and worry. This passage can be a tremendous blessing in our lives to free us from following after the false hope of a false gospel. We do not gain confidence in our salvation by comparing ourselves to others. Remember, Jesus warned that a person's righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. A feat that was nigh on impossible because those men had devoted their entire lives to the extremest form of of piety and religion that they could imagine. They invented new ways to be more holy and separate from the people, to show more of their devotion to God. In a similar fashion, I believe Jesus would say that our works must exceed the boastful works of the hypocrites in verse 22 if by our works we would gain entrance to the kingdom. We would need to do more than prophesy, more than cast out demons, more than perform miracles in Jesus' name if those deeds were going to get us entrance. Being good enough to gain entrance on our own is impossible. And beloved, that is foundational to the hope of the gospel. It is good news for us. It is soothing to the soul to realize and be reminded, no matter how fantastic of works we can boast of, they still would not be enough. That there is no hope for us in pursuing that path, in walking that road to try and be adequate on our own. Christ has done for us what we could never have done for ourselves. That is why our only boast must be of Christ. This passage, these passages like this, can go a long way to help us let go of our pride. We want it to be, we don't want to admit it, but we want it to be something about ourselves. We want there to be something about us, something about how we're not as sinful as other people that commends us to God. We want some of the credit. That is our nature. Yet passages like this remind us that there is nothing that we could possibly do to earn anything before God. We have no claim of the kingdom on our own. We are not worthy. We cannot make ourselves worthy. We were conceived in sin. We were born in sin. And we have lived and breathed sin all of our lives. As John Bunyan aptly said, the best prayer I have ever prayed had enough sin to damn the whole world. Christ is truly our only hope. As the Heidelberg Confession so clearly asks and answers, what is our only hope in life and in death? 
The answer is that I am not my own, but but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the powers of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. There are really only two responses that someone can expect to receive when they stand before the judgment throne of Christ. I never knew you. Depart from me. Or... Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into my joy. The determining factor of which response you will receive is whether or not you are known by Christ. All who belong to him do the will of the Father. They follow him. They love him. They obey him. I want to end with one simple question that if you answer honestly, will reveal much about your relationship with Christ. If today you were to stand before the judgment throne, would your claim on the kingdom, would your claim on why you should be allowed to enter, would it be based on the things that you have done or on the things that Christ has done? Would you boast of your works or of his? Would you speak of your worth or of his? Think about that and answer it honestly. I'm not going to ask you for your answer, and it does no good to lie to yourself about what is really in your heart, about those things which you are really depending on. May God free us from the bondage of looking to ourselves in our desire to enter into the kingdom. Beloved, look to Christ. Father, we are thankful even for the hard words in Scripture. We are thankful even for the hard questions. By your Spirit, Lord, search our hearts, know our ways. Reveal on what we have placed our hope. And if it be anything other than Christ and Christ alone, Father, break us in repentance. Lead us to your kindness. Let us see our inadequacy, our failure. Let us see our doom in ourselves. Let us be broken of the pride. Draw us to your Son. We rest in the hope of the gospel and may your children not be brought to despair, but to find joy in the reminder that it is all of Christ. He is our boast. He is our joy. He is our confidence. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.